If you have your Bibles, uh, take them now and turn with me again to Matthew chapter 13. We're coming to the end of the parables in this chapter. We've got this one and one more. We're looking this morning at the parable of the dragnet in Matthew chapter 13, verses 47 to 50. Matthew chapter 13, verses 47 to 50. Let's hear now the word of the Lord. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. When it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into containers but threw away the bad. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. How can a young man keep his way pure? Amen. Would you please be seated? Let's pray. Holy Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we come before You now acknowledging that even in the preaching of Your Word, this is a moment of worship. It is a moment in which we seek to exalt the name of Jesus Christ in all of His perfections. And we ask that You would attend the preaching of Your Word by Your Holy Spirit, that convicting our hearts of sin, enable us to repent, O Father, and magnify Your name and Your salvation. We pray in the name of Christ our Savior. Amen. You probably know that if you want to be really popular, simply deny the reality of God's wrath and condemnation. If you do, you might be invited on Oprah, like Rob Bell or Megyn Kelly's show, and get a Netflix special like Pentecostal pastor Carlton Pearson. If you do, however, you will also be guilty of greasing the slide, as it were, of guilty men into God's eternal wrath. As we come to Matthew chapter 13, verses 47 to 50, you probably notice some, the repetition of some words there, uh, such as weeping and gnashing of teeth. There's a reason, I think, that Jesus, on, with a, a few of these parables, has, has said the same thing a couple of times. Probably like my father, he knows that he needs to repeat them so that I don't miss them. So he says it twice. Last week, he reiterated the same uh, principle of uh, turning to the kingdom and finding joy in the kingdom, of, of finding my eternal and everlasting joy in one source, that is, the reign of Jesus Christ in my life. Day by day, yielding myself more and more to the reign of Christ. Well, in Matthew 13, Jesus um, emphasized another aspect of the kingdom. That that kingdom is a kingdom of righteousness. And every man who refuses to yield himself to the reign of Christ will find himself under the wrath of God. And what we learn from this passage is that at the last judgment, Christ will send His angels to remove the wicked and cast them into everlasting torment. Now, you may be used to looking at charts of the end times, and some of those charts look sort of like the, 
electrical schematic for a U.S. battleship. And you see lines coming from all over the place. Jesus simplifies the end times significantly by reducing it to two eras. There is the era of gospel gathering and there's the final judgment. And that's it. The era of gospel gathering and kingdom growth and then the judgment. And that's it. Isn't that a lot simpler than the battleship electrical schematic? At the end of time, Christ will send forth His angels and they will remove the wicked from the congregation of the righteous and His people having been glorified will inherit the earth. It's not that difficult. And this parable teaches us about both eras. I have actually changed my outline a little bit um, because I wanted to, in the first place, to talk about the gospel era, the era of gospel gathering. Uh, This parable teaches us about both of them and then the, the end... But it emphasizes the final judgment, doesn't it? We notice that Christ places a special emphasis when He explains the parable. All that He explains is the separation of the righteous and the wicked and the eternal torment of the wicked. The first thing that we notice then from from the parable is the age of gospel gathering in verses 47 to 48. The age of gospel gathering. Notice it with me as we look back at the text. Again, The kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. When it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into containers but threw away the bad. I want you to notice something with me that that we are in the present reality of the kingdom. We are in the present reality of the kingdom. Just look simply Notice that every time Jesus tells his parables of the kingdom, what does he say? Does he say the kingdom of heaven will be like? No, that's not what he says, is it? He says the kingdom of heaven is like. And so the simple uh, uh, truth that we draw from this is that the kingdom of Christ is a present reality. He has said this to us over and over and over. It isn't something that is purely future. It has a present reality. I think it's noteworthy that Jesus repeatedly says this. It is like. Now, certainly some of the parables uh, emphasize future realities, don't they? They look down the line and they tell, tell us what to anticipate. But the inference seems to be that the kingdom is a present reality which will experience a future reality too. It, it is ongoing and changing. The kingdom of Christ is present now, he is telling us, as a drag net. Some of you are fishermen, and we notice that there are different types of fishing in the New Testament. Remember, in Matthew 22, he told them to to throw a line in the sea to draw out a a single fish, and what they caught was a fish with a, a coin in its mouth. But the type of net that Jesus refers to here is a drag net. It is a a cast net, or we might also call it a seine, and it comes from the Latin term sagaina. Now, uh, these dragnets were, some some of these dragnets would would have been a half a mile long, and that you have a group of men on one end of it, and a group of men on another end, and they gradually drag the bottom, and they pull in their catch. 
And these dragnets are carried at least by two men or more. They, they walk along, and this is how they entrap or catch uh, their fish. Um, some uh, Greek historians would talk about barbarians, and, and they would use this same method to capture the inhabitants of an island. They would stretch from one end to the other, and they would link arms together, and they would go through that island until they caught every single individual. So this net, it is an indiscriminate hunter. It's not got a lure looking for a particular type of fish. It catches everything. Notice that this is what Jesus says. It gathered fish of every kind. It's indiscriminate. It catches the good and the bad. In this case, the fish are a metaphor for men. which means that there are only two kinds of fish. Wicked men and righteous ones. And so the preaching of the Gospel is like a net, if you think about it. It, Before, Jesus has described the preaching of the Gospel like a sower who goes forth to sow, and he's casting seed, and how does he do it? Indiscriminately. He throws it everywhere. He's not looking for a, a pot. He's not cultivating the soil first and putting the seed in. He casts it indiscriminately into the world. And in the same way, this net goes out catching whatever it catches. It's indiscriminate. This isn't the first time that Jesus has used the imagery of fishing for evangelism, is it? Remember that he called his disciples to be what? Fishers of men in Matthew 4.19. He was relating the work of evangelism to work that they were familiar with. And this dragnet then represents the gospel ministry going into the world. The kingdom of Jesus Christ in its current phase is a preaching and gathering kingdom. You and I participate in building Christ's kingdom. How? By preaching the gospel. Our evangelism should look like we are taking a dragnet through our community. We're not looking for the people who seem like their hearts are ready to accept the gospel. We are sowing the seeds of the gospel indiscriminately wherever we have the opportunity to sow it. We're sowing the gospel. We're dragging a net Wherever we go, we're not looking for the people who who look like they're going to respond positively. That guy looks like he's ready. We preach to all. And our expectation is that after we pull our net to shore, then the sorting will occur. The angels do the proper separating. And so what's our expectation In the here and now, in this age of gospel gathering, what does Jesus teach us from this parable? That there are going to be a mixture of fish in the gospel net, aren't there? There will be a mixture of fish. And it's interesting, isn't it, how some uh, wicked men look for the gospel, they listen to the gospel, and they seem to attach themselves to it. Even coming into the church as well. Jesus has already talked to us about this, hasn't he? Some wicked men, it seems to say, will fall away in their lifetimes when persecution or tribulation come. But the true separation of the righteous from the wicked will not come 
until Christ sends his angels to judge the wicked. And so how are we living now? This is what we are to think of. You and I are to sow the gospel indiscriminately. This is the objective of this age. This is the reason that Christ tarries in his return so that he might draw many men to himself. We learn in 1 Peter, don't we? And the question for us is, are we sowing the seeds of the gospel in this way? Do you see yourself as dragging the dragnet of the gospel through culture? Are you holding an end of it? The second thing that Jesus shows us is the second age. The end of the age or the final judgment. Notice with me in verse 49. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So uh, the very simple premise here is that this age of gospel gathering won't last forever. There will come a time when the net, having become full, will be dragged up onto the shore and sat down and a separating activity will take place. This is clear from the passage. Jesus says that he will send his angels forth. This, this repeats what Jesus said in the parable of the wheat and the tares, doesn't it? Remember that there he said that he had commanded his angels not to come out yet to remove the wicked, but to leave them. And that at the proper time, the Son of Man, Christ himself, would command them to come, and at that time they would remove the wicked from the congregation of the righteous. What we see then is that presently, the preaching of the gospel is gathering both wicked and good. Think about this now. The preaching of the gospel is gathering good men, that is, men who come to a sincere faith, and it is gathering men who don't come to a sincere faith. In the parable of the sower, two types of soil produced a temporary kind of fruit. They had a temporary response to the seed of the gospel. Now, for a period of time, they looked like they were sincere believers. They probably gathered at the church barbecue. But in time, their conversion was shown to be false. Here, the gospel dragnet is pulling in fish of every kind. And you, you can probably think in your lifetime you have seen men who seemed like they responded to the gospel. Maybe there was a, a, a major tent revival and they walked forward, they, they walked the aisle, they signed a membership card. If you're from that kind of a tradition, they signed a membership card and, and then times got hard. There was a moment, perhaps, of persecution in that man's life. A moment when he was, he was called to, to affirm his profession of Christ amongst his buddies. Or he was called on to, to leave a certain hobby or, or even employment because he couldn't worship Christ faithfully and have that thing. And he wouldn't do it. Do you know that some unregenerate men are attracted to the gospel? Why? Well, ultimately, not because they acknowledge themselves to be sinners, 
or because they acknowledge the Lordship of Jesus Christ, or because they're ready to fully submit to the authority of God's Word. Maybe they like the idea of redemption. Maybe they're at a low point in their lives, and they need somebody to come, on, come alongside and give them an attaboy, to say, pick your chin up. Don't feel bad. There's help for you. And as long as the gospel feels like it's giving them help, therapeutically, they will embrace it. But as soon as it makes a requirement upon their lives, I'm out. I'm out. These men never fully embrace the concept of personal sin or the absolute authority of God's Word. And so as in the parable of the wheat and the tares, Jesus will send His angels ultimately to remove those men, to pluck them out. Think about this then. That there are men perhaps who come to the end of their lives affiliating themselves with the church of Jesus Christ, but they are never in it. Is that frightening? The angels will remove both from the net at the end of the age. They separate the evil from the righteous. They they put the the good men, the men who have embraced Christ, the men who have yielded themselves to His kingdom, the men who who profess Christ as as a king and a lord, who profess their sins before Him freely, who humble themselves, who acknowledge the absolute authority and power of Almighty God, As Creator, they are removed and put into jars. They are preserved. But what is clear from this passage is that they don't both go to the same place. They don't both go to the same place. Regardless of what Rob Bell says, or Bishop Pearson They don't both go to the same place. The righteous are removed and put into a jar. What happens to the wicked? This is the emphasis here. They separate the evil from the righteous. The wicked will be separated from the righteous. They are treated like unwanted fish. Some of you, you know that you you cast a lion in and some you... You catch stick fish. Some of you are probably pretty good at that. You take that fish off and you throw it away. Or you catch a fish that's too small. Maybe it doesn't meet uh, the legal limit. And it's an unwanted fish then. And what do you do with it? You throw it back. But these, these fish are not thrown back. These fish are cast outside. Literally cast outside. Now, By this point, you should be familiar with that terminology. Jesus said in the parable of the salt and the light, He says when the salt has lost its saltiness, what happens to it? It's thrown outside to be trampled underfoot. Outside represents the place of cursing. When Adam and his family were put outside of Eden... They were not under the blessing of God anymore. They were under His curse. When you were put outside of the camp of Israel, you dwelt in the wilderness with the jackals and the wild beasts. 
you were under God's curse. This is the destiny of the wicked, to be cast outside. These unwanted fish, they're not simply tossed back into the sea to swim along, to go about their merry way. They're thrown on the beach. In in his epic poem, uh, The Odyssey, Homer gives an illustration of this. He talks about fishermen who separated their catch and they gathered the fish on the shore. They're sitting, they've, they've come, they've walked their net up and they've gathered the whole thing up on the shore. Maybe they've got a campfire, a fire started there and they start separating the desirable fish from the undesirable ones. And what do they do? They leave the unwanted fish on the shore. You know what that scene would look like. He describes it, rather than cast them back into the sea, they left them on the shore where they pant. You can see the gills moving up and down as they're trying to gasp for air. They pant to return to the salt sea. They lie till the hot sun takes their life from them. This is the picture of the parable. In this case, the life will never be taken from the wicked. Instead, the hot fury of God's wrath will endure forever. Notice that at the end of the age, the wicked will be gathered and they will be disfellowshipped from the righteous and cast outside. This is, think about it, this is the same picture that we get from Psalm 1, isn't it? The righteous man is like a tree and he stands firm because he's planted by the rivers of water and he's, he's nourished and nourished and nourished. His leaf doesn't wither. It bears its fruit in its season. But the psalmist there writes that the wicked are not like that. They are like chaff. And at the end of that psalm, they go their separate ways. The writer says the wicked will not stand in the judgment nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. You see the picture there. It's almost as though they've been going along and going along and going along and going along in the congregation of the righteous until the final judgment, and they are ripped out. And in this parable, Jesus teaches us that the wicked, in that day of separation, their lives will not end. They will enter into torment. The torment is to endure God's wrath. And the future of the wicked then is described in two aspects. Notice it with me, verse 50. What will happen? They will be thrown into the fiery furnace. That probably sounds familiar if you've read Daniel. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So there are two things here. They will be thrown into the fiery furnace and they will undergo weeping and gnashing of teeth. The the fiery furnace is a vivid picture of the wrath of God. The angels will go out and separate the wicked from the midst of the righteous and they will cast them into this fiery furnace. So they, they aren't just left, notice, they aren't just left like the fish in Homer's Odyssey to sort of passively endure the heat of the sun as they gasp for air. This is not a passive suffering. It is an active pouring out of torment. This furnace 
is the image of a potter's kiln. You think of men who are actively attending that kiln and they are pumping the billows to raise the temperature and they're adding the fuel and they're adding the fuel and they're adding the fuel, not just so that it will burn, so that it will burn hotly. It is also used of a smelter's furnace so that the fire will, will burn the metal and melt it so that the impurities can be removed in other words, this is a fire that is cultivated for high temperature. You remember in the, in the story of, of Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego that Nebuchadnezzar said to, to turn the heat up. This is the picture. It's not just a fire. Don't just cast them into a fire that burns, but cast them into a furnace of fire. Not just... Fire, then, that is away from God's presence. Instead, God's presence is depicted for the wicked here as the fire. The fire is to live in God's presence under the unmitigated fury of His wrath. Sometimes we might envision that the, the wicked and the day of judgment will be removed from God's presence. They will go into a place that the book of Revelation describes as a lake of fire. But our confession of faith in chapter 33 reminds us that the presence of God and, and, and living in His presence is the torment of the wicked. But it isn't, it isn't His presence in the sense of blessing as you and I might know it through the Lord Jesus Christ. But to be in the presence of God is to endure His wrath for the wicked. Listen to just a few passages of Scripture. Psalm 68, 2. As smoke is driven away, so you shall drive them away. As wax melts before fire, so the wicked shall perish before God. Psalm 89, 46. How long, O Lord? Will you hide yourself forever? How long will your wrath burn like fire? Isaiah 9, 19. Through the wrath of the Lord of hosts, the land is scorched, and the people are like fuel for the fire. No one spares another. Again from Isaiah, Behold, the name of the Lord comes from afar, burning with His anger, and in thick rising smoke His lips are full of fury, and His tongue is like a devouring fire. For a burning place has long been prepared. Indeed, for the king it is made ready. Its pyre made deep and wide with fire and wood in abundance. The breath of the Lord, like a stream of sulfur, kindles it. These are not pleasant pictures. Turn over with me to Revelation chapter 14. You would think that if this is the case, and the fire is a furnace that is cultivated for its heat, that no one can endure this. Surely this must be a temporary sort of suffering, a temporary sort of torment. Read together with me Revelation 14, verses 9 to 11. And another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, if anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath, 
poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb, and the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. And they have no rest, day or night, these worshipers of the beast and its image, and whoever receives the mark of its name. Turn over to Revelation chapter 20. Begin reading in verse 9, and they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city, but fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. If we accept the testimony of the scriptures with reference to the torment of the wicked. It is a torment that endures forever and ever. And it may be, it may be difficult for you to conceive of, of that kind of, of flaming fire and how does it come against a man's body and it not totally disintegrate him. Well, turn back over with me to Leviticus chapter 10. Immediately after Aaron and Moses had gone into the tabernacle for the first time, they had dedicated it. We learned that Nadab and Abihu, these are Aaron's sons, had profaned the temple by burning unauthorized fire. We read in Leviticus 10.1, Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. Notice what happens in verse 2. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them. And they died before the Lord. So here's the description is God's judgment, his curse comes out from the altar and rather than burning a sacrifice, it burns these men. It consumed them, the scriptures say. Let's continue. Then Moses said to Aaron, this is verse 3, this is what the Lord has said. Among those who are near me, I will be sanctified, and before all the people, I will be glorified. And Aaron held his peace in verse 4. And Moses called Mishael and Elzaphan, the sons of Uziel, the uncle of Aaron, and said to them, Come near, carry your brothers away from the front of the sanctuary and out of the camp. So they came near and carried them. Now notice what it says. In their coats. Out of the camp, as Moses had said. How does that happen? Well, in the same way that God, by His Holy Spirit, supernaturally sustains us, His people, through the afflictions of this life, in the same way God will supernaturally sustain the wicked so that they endure His punishment forever and forever. This is an eternal fire. Turn back with me now to Matthew 13. Let's just notice one last part of this. There are two aspects of this torment. It is a fiery torment that comes out from the Lord, but but the second aspect of this is that it is a real physical anguish. It is a real physical anguish. Verse 50, 
and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This can only describe the physical response. It's not just a spiritual aspect. It is both a spiritual, a soulful, and a physical response from these folks so that their eyes, while they are in this torment, can weep with tears and they can gnash their teeth. This weeping depicts a gut-wrenching crying or wailing. After Moses died, the people of Israel are described as weeping over his death for 40 days. And they gnash their teeth, which can either depict grinding of teeth due to pain. It can depict the grinding of teeth as a man who is furious at another. He has abject anger and hatred, and probably both are intended here. The wicked in this eternal torment never approach anything like godly, um, a godly sort of grief that leads to repentance. They never regret the decisions that they've made in their lives. They are only and always returning God's fury with a fury of their own, weeping and gnashing their teeth and raising their fists. I don't deserve this. Who are you? At the last judgment, Christ will send His angels to remove the wicked and cast them into everlasting torment. And I want you to understand that it is important for you to get this vividly. Because when you consider the torment that Christ endured for you, this is it. This is it. He endured the fiery furnace of God's wrath. He took up the cup, and you saw it, didn't you, in Revelation chapter 14. And when he drinks the cup, what is he drinking? The cup of God's wrath. This wrath, this furnace that is heated a thousand times hotter. And he did that for you so that he might rescue you from this wrath. He rescues you from God so that you will not come into His presence in the unmitigated fury, but that you will come clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ so that He will look upon you and say, welcome into your rest. In two parables, Jesus illustrated the final condemnation of the unrepentant, unsubmissive man And this is the fate of the man who will not acknowledge his sin and yield to Christ as a king. And so for you and me, what is our first application of this? To myself. Your second application is to your neighbor. Have you fled to Christ who endured this torment for you? Remember, remember that this net represents men who are gathered by the gospel. And some in that day will be shown to be false. Have you confessed your sin? Have you yielded to Christ as King and Master? 
Is your life marked by a concern for the lost and the unregenerate? Do you testify to the reality of God's wrath against sinners? Or might someone mistake you for one who believes this parable is just a parable and that all will truly be saved? Jesus told, use this illustration twice to burn it into our hearts so that we will know it is a certain reality. Let's pray. Our Father, the Scriptures testify to us in Romans 1 that Your wrath is being revealed even this day. It is being revealed even this day from heaven if we will look and see it. The calamities that befall men from famine and plagues and other acts of God, all of these things reveal to us that You are angry and that Your hatred abides not upon sin but upon sinful men. And Father, we begin then simply by acknowledging that, that we know we deserve this. That there is no pain in this life that we do not deserve. If You were to blot us out forever, if You were to cast every single one of us into a pit a, where a pyre has been prepared that we might be burned forever and ever and ever, Lord, we deserve it. And more. But we thank You that through Jesus Christ You have made a way of salvation so that we might avoid this judgment. So we pray that we would not be like the man who built his house upon sand, who thought he really was building a house. Help us to be like the man who builds his house upon the rock, knowing that the rock is Christ. We pray this in His name and for His glory. Amen.